Our sermon today will be taken from Exodus chapter 5, verse 22, until chapter 6, verse 9. This is the word of God. Then Moses, Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name is the Lord. I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. And I remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under your bur the burdens of the Egyptians, and I'll deliver you from the slavery to them. And I'll redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. Thus says the Lord. Amen. There we go. Uh, let us pray one more time for the preaching of God's word. Father, thank you for condescending to us, Lord God. Though we often accuse you as Moses accuses you, though we are often fickle as the Israelites were, you have not remained the self-existent one, but you have came down in a covenant, and you've came down to take on human flesh in the form of your son, Jesus Christ. So Father, help us now adore you through this gospel. Help us now uh, dive into this text, make this text clear to us, and let your Holy Spirit be present so that we might apply it into our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Friends, we're continuing our series this week in the book of Moses. We're continuing on and now in chapter 5, verse 22, all the way to chapter 6, verse 9. I encourage you to open your Bibles there with me and follow along here with me. Now, remember now the context of the book of Exodus so far. We're just going through it chapter by chapter in the life of Moses. And in chapter 3, Moses was commissioned to go back to Egypt in the burning bush to deliver God's people. And Moses was, of course, kind of timid about this, and God had sent him Aaron to be a spokesperson on Moses' behalf. So Moses and Aaron would go to Egypt to speak this message of deliverance to the Israelites and to give Pharaoh the message that he has to let the Israelites go. And when Moses and Aaron finally got to the Israelites in Egypt, they had preached in this message of deliverance. And of course, at the end of chapter 4, we saw that the Israelites worshipped God because of this. They were anticipating this. They were waiting for this. They couldn't wait to be redeemed by the Lord. Then, of course, we saw in chapter 5 last week that the Israelites became discouraged because when Moses and Aaron came before Pharaoh and told them this message of redemption, Pharaoh hardened his heart as God had predicted, and Pharaoh made their slavery all the more difficult. And when Pharaoh made their slavery all the more difficult, the Israelites complained to Moses. Moses heard the Israelites, and Moses now turns to God and complains to God. That's the context. That's how we're going to go into it today. So there's three things I want to point out from today's passage. First, let's take a look really briefly at Moses' charge. Second, we're going to take a look at how God responds. And third, we're going to see how God approves of the stiff-necked people. All right, so 
The first point, Moses is charged against God in verses 22 to 23. Look here with me. And then Moses, having seen all this, the, the Israelites complaining and, and Pharaoh making their slavery all the more difficult, turned to the Lord for a confrontation and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. All right? Moses coming to God red hot and fire and, 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 and anger, and Moses is, is charging God with all these accusations against God, right? And underneath all of these accusations are more primal uh, uh, accusations against God's character. Notice the first thing that Moses says to God. Oh, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? What's Moses charging God with? Moses is saying here, God, you're not a good God. You have delivered them unto evil, right? You are not a good God. Moses, in other words, is simply accusing God of not being the God that God makes him out to be. He's not a good God. He's a bad God. He's done evil to his people. So the goodness of God is being compromised here in Moses' eyes, and the goodness of God is being accused in Moses' eyes. Not only that, not just the goodness of God, Moses also questions the wisdom of God. Look at that second question. Why did you ever send me? Moses is saying here, I told you that this isn't going to work out. When God had appeared to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, Moses says, send somebody else, right? Uh, I'm not the mediator that you want. I'm not the deliverer that you want. I'm not the person that you're looking for. Send somebody else. This isn't going to work out. And Moses thinks here that, that his reasoning has been vindicated because it, it didn't work, it seems, right? In chapter 5, Moses came to Pharaoh and Pharaoh didn't listen to him. So he should have sent somebody else. God's wisdom is being, being questioned here. And after that, Moses also charges God for this. Verse 23. For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. Notice there that he's saying here, since I obeyed you, since I came to Pharaoh in your name, he has done evil to his people. I followed your plans. I followed you and I followed all of your directions and I came to Pharaoh. But since then, since I obeyed you, right? Since I obeyed your wise command, he has done more evil to his people. So God, are you even wise? This, this obedience that I've paid to you, this, this is not worth it, right? Moses, in Moses' mind here, there's kind of retribution theology where Moses is saying, I thought that if I obeyed you, things would go smoothly. Things would go according to what I expected. This, things will go comfortably for me and for the people of God. But that's not what happened, right? Moses obeyed. Things didn't get easier. And Moses should have been surprised by this, but actually God, again, right, uh, had predicted that this would happen. God had told Moses in Exodus chapter 4, Pharaoh's going to be hardening his heart. He won't let his people go. He won't let Israel, God's son, go unless a lot of plagues happen. But Moses thought, if I just obeyed God here, things would go well for me, right? But that's not exactly what happened. That's not the plan of God here. So not only the goodness of God, but also the wisdom of God. God, your plans has not worked out. I obeyed you. It hasn't worked out. You were not the wise God. Your, your commands haven't been wise. They haven't paid off. So not only those two things, but also the power of God is being compromised here in Moses' eyes. God is being accused by Moses to being a powerless God because look at verse 23 again. For since I came to Pharaoh to speak your name, he has done evil to his people and you haven't delivered them. You haven't acted. Your name, in other words, has been powerless. You told me to go to Pharaoh and you told me specifically to call forth your name, Yahweh, right? That's the name of God revealed to Moses in Exodus chapter three. And when Moses invoked that name, nothing happened. Their lives became more difficult. And so Moses is here saying, look, is your name really powerful? 
Maybe I should go by a different name. Maybe Pharaoh's name is actually more powerful than your name. Because when I use your name, your so-called self-existent name, right? Yahweh, that you are the all-powerful, all-defining, self-sufficient God, nothing happened. And notice the emphasis. You have not delivered your people at all. You've made our lives worse, O Lord. That's the basic charge. God, you're not good. You're not wise. You should have followed my plans instead sent somebody else. Since I obeyed you, nothing happened. And God, you're not powerful because since I spoke your name according to what you told me, nothing happened. You haven't delivered us. Pharaoh is more powerful, it seems. There's a competition here of lordship between God and Pharaoh in Moses' mind. And so that's Moses' charge. That's the first point. Let's go to God's response now. How does God respond to this and move to our second point? God's response begins in chapter 6, verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. Now, all of the speech in God in verses 1 all the way to verse 8, God actually reassures Moses to go on with his plan by reminding Moses of four things. God responds in four ways. He responds by reminding Moses of his purpose. He responds by reminding Moses of God's name. He responds by repeating himself from Exodus chapter 3, so God's repetition. And also, he responds by reminding Moses of his covenant, the promises of God. So God's purposes, God's name, God's repetition, God's covenant. That's the four aspects of his response in the speech, all right? So first, in this, the first, the, the first verse of chapter 6, God reminds Moses of the purposes of why he sent Moses to Pharaoh to begin with. Look again. Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, this is God's strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. What's God emphasizing? In three times, God has been emphasizing that it is God's power, God's initiative, God's agency that will cause Pharaoh to drive these people out. And his strong hand will be revealed. In other words, the purpose here, Moses, is so that you would see my power through this exodus. This is not meant to be easy for you, because if it was easy for you, then the people might mistake that it was your power and your initiative and your agency, your persuasiveness, Moses, that have led Pharaoh to, let, to, to, to take these people out. But it's not going to be about you. It's about my power being shown. If this was easy, people might think it's about you. But rather, he's saying here, my power is the purpose of this. My glory will be displayed in this exodus, this redemption story, in the Red Sea that Moses is about to see later on. And this is, again, fortified. The purpose is here. It's in verse 3. Look at this. Well, let's start from verse 2 and, and then go to verse 3. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, or Yahweh there in capital letters there in your Bibles, the Lord in capital letters refers to God's name, Yahweh in the Hebrew, I did not make myself known to them. So notice here what's going on in verse 3. He's saying, I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but they didn't really know my name, namely Yahweh. And remember again what the name of God means. The name of God, Yahweh, is in the same Hebrew word as the name of God in Exodus 3.14. I am who I am. And remember, a few weeks ago we covered what that meant. It meant that God was self-sufficient, independent, that he's, he doesn't just have goodness. He is goodness himself. He is power himself. He's the all-powerful one. And what God is saying here in verse 3 is, I showed myself to Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac, but, but they don't really know my name. Now, some commentators have been confused about this, especially in the 19th century. A lot of commentators said that Exodus 6, verse 3, was actually not written by Moses, but was written by a different author, and then some later editor put it in, in Exodus 6, verse 3. Why did he think this? Well, because 
If you take a look at Genesis 3, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, when God actually appeared to Adam, Abraham, Isaac, and so on, God did reveal his name. God communicated himself to them again and again. I am Yahweh. I will deliver you. I am Yahweh. I will rescue you. I'm Yahweh. Obey me. I will deliver you out. So they did know his name, the Lord. So how come here in verse 3, God says, they didn't know my name, right? So what's going on here? I think what God is saying here, I don't think this was edited out and put in there by a redactor. I just think that this, what God is trying to communicate here is that they might have known verbally what my name was, but they never knew the power that it signified. It never was really displayed for them until now, Moses. You're going to see something they never saw. You're going to see the place. You're going to see the exodus out of the Red Sea. And isn't this how the disciples reacted to Jesus too? Remember, the disciples knew that the name of Jesus Christ was Yeshua, God saves, all right? But over and over again throughout the Gospels, they never understood what that meant. God saves, yes, okay, but Jesus, don't go to the cross. Don't suffer on our behalf. You're not called to suffer on our behalf, right? So over and over again, they, they knew the name of Jesus, Yeshua, but they never understood what it fully meant unless and until Jesus actually resurrected after the cross, right? And then they went out in boldness, proclaiming the preaching of Jesus Christ that he died for them and was raised on their behalf. So finally and only then did they know the power of God. And so the same way here, God is saying to Moses, they knew conceptually what my name was, but they didn't know it really. But by Pharaoh's heart being hardened, by the, the, the Egyptians enslaving the Israelites a bit longer, God will show forth his power by taking the Israelites out, not just out of a dire situation, but out of impossible circumstances through miraculous means. That's what God is trying to say here. I will show off my power here. This is again echoed. Moses, you're not just going to know this, but also the people of Israel. Look at verse 7. I will take you to be my people, the, the people of Israel as supposed to know, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from the burdens of the Egyptians. O Israel, know that I am the hero behind this. And as Christians, I hope that we recognize that this is the way God works, and we take delight in it, right? You know, when God called Abraham out from, from, from Babel, right, and, and, and Abraham came out to obey God, and God said to him, I promise you more descendants than you can ever imagine, more than the sands of the seashore. I'll give you offspring upon offspring upon offspring to fulfill a land. And what happened? Abraham stayed childless until Sarah was old and barren, and then God says, now you will have a child so that you can see that this child comes from me and not from your own powers and manipulations. And then, of course, Paul, I'm going to send you as a missionary to the Gentiles. But Paul didn't just skip around as a walk in the park going around to all the different nations, right? Paul was persecuted, flogged, shipwrecked, beaten. And God put a thorn in his side so that Paul could understand that this is not out of his own power that he could do this. But God says it again and again to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. Oh, Christian, do we delight in the fact that our purpose here, and all the tasks we have to do is precisely to point to the power and the glory of God. So, so Moses is reminded of God's purposes. That's the first thing God communicates to Moses. But the second thing God communicates to Moses here in God's response, still under the second point, is God's name, right? Four times, God repeats his name to Moses. Again, look at verse 2. I am the Lord. Look at the beginning of verse 6. I am the Lord. And look at verse 7 again. I am the Lord who brought you out from the burdens of the Egyptians. And then verse 8, right? At the closing of God's speech to Moses, he says, I am the Lord. So four times, unmistakably, the name of God is invoked again and again here. As a reminder for Moses that God is not in the same category as Pharaoh, 
right? This is significant in light of Moses' charge. Look at verses 22 to 23, again, in chapter 5. Look at how Moses again addresses the Lord. In verse 22, it says, Moses turned to the Lord, and the Lord there in the Hebrew is Yahweh, again, the name of God, and said, O Lord. So how did Moses address God in verse 22? Not by calling on God's personal name, but by calling on God's generic title, Adonai, which is something that people would have called Pharaoh with too. They would have called Pharaoh Lord. This is a generic title of lordship. Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? And notice the parallelism with which Moses describes God and Pharaoh. God, you are the Lord and you have done evil. And then Pharaoh, that Lord, he has done evil. What is Moses trying to communicate here? Moses is challenging God by saying, are you really that different from Pharaoh? Is your lordship that different from Pharaoh? Do you and Pharaoh compete as both lords in competition, right? And remember again, God is saying emphatically here, I'm not in the same class as Pharaoh. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, the self-existent one. He is self-defining as the God who is self-sufficient, right? In other words, God doesn't belong under a particular definition. God defines himself. He belongs to a particular class of his own. He doesn't, he's not a member of a class. He's not a species under a genus. He's not something that you could categorize with something else, right? And I hope we get this. The older theologians call it the singularity of God, right? It means that God isn't categorizable. He's on a class of his own. He's singularly who he is on his own, sui generis. You see, if Davin and Sam, our two church interns, are, are, are obedient and faithful church interns, if they got into a fight here in the beginning here, right, and they're wrestling and they're tossing, it's unclear who's going to win that. Maybe. And maybe some of you think it's clear. I don't know. But it's really unclear who would win that. Why? Because both Davin and Sam are defined under the definition humanity, right? They're both men. They're going to come up here. They're going to fight. It's still unclear who's going to win. It's, it's up for grabs, right? You're going to see, look and see who would actually win because they're both men. It's not obvious to you which one is actually better, right? Because they're both, they share a common definition, right? If I and Tazar are going into a fight, it's the same thing. If you got into a fight with a fellow human being, it's the same thing, right? Because you're both members of the same class, defined under the same category. But you see, friends, God's name actually means that he's on a class on his own. He does not belong to a genus. And he's saying here, you think that I'm, me and Pharaoh, that, that lordship is somehow a greater definition or a category that I and Pharaoh belong under and that we're going to compete? No, no, no. You see, I'm not just greater than Pharaoh in degree. I'm greater than Pharaoh because I am on a class of my own. He's wholly other. He's set apart from everything else. And so don't conflate my name and who I am, my lordship with Pharaoh's lordship. I am the Lord. Don't you see, Moses? I'm the sovereign one. Moses, don't fear Pharaoh. I am the Lord, and that's, that's who I am. That's who I am behind you. So God doesn't just remind Moses of the purposes. God doesn't just remind Moses of the name, that he's a self-sovereign, self-defining, singularly God. He is the Lord. There is no other. In Isaiah 45, 5, we saw from our call to worship. But also, he repeats himself, right? So this is the repetition with which God speaks to Moses. Look, verse 2 to 5 is actually repeated in verses 6 to 8. Moses, I mean, God's speech here to Moses is repeated. He's saying here, Moses, listen to this, and whatever I'm going to communicate to you here, communicate this again to the people of Israel. What's the content of that speech? I'm the Lord. Here's my name. I will deliver you. Here's my message of salvation. 
and here's my covenant, right? So his lordship, his plan, his message was the same to Moses, and Moses, you have to communicate this to Israel. But not only does God repeat himself from 2 to 5 and then verses 6 to 8, but this whole speech should be very familiar to you by now because this is the exact same speech in Exodus chapter 3. When God first called Moses to go to Egypt, God said to Moses, this is what you're going to do. You're going to use my name. You're going to communicate that I'm going to redeem them and, I will, I'll, uh, and, and that I will have my covenant and I'll be their God. I'll, they'll be my people, right? It's the same exact speech here to Moses. Again, this is absolutely significant because what, here's Moses' temptation, right? Remember the charge of Moses again in verse 23. Since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he, ha- he hasn't let the people go, and you haven't delivered us. In other words, Moses is saying here, your name hasn't worked. Your message didn't work. You haven't delivered us. Maybe there's a different name we can use. Maybe there's a different message that we could use, right? Moses, in other words, was tempted to change the message and the name of God and his theology, even the name of God's theology, in order to get the outcome that he thought he he needed, to, to get the outcome that he wanted, right? He was, in other words, willing to change his message to appease his listeners. Look, your name didn't please them. Let me not go with a different method. But God here emphatically is saying, he's repeating himself. Moses, my agenda has been the same. Tell them exactly what I told you to tell them in Exodus chapter 3. Repeat yourself to them. Stay the course. Stay with the word of God. In other words, Moses, you, again, you're a priest of God, right? You don't have the right to change the word of God just to please your listeners. Because you're not a business trying to please consumers, right? Tazar sent me an article from Force magazine about a particular Indonesian brand, and this brand had lasted for a long time. And they said that the key to success is that they would always adapt their resources and, and, and their goods and services to consumer expectations. So if the consumer changes their desires from A to B, they would also change their product from A to B, right? And that's the perennial temptation of every preacher, right? We would think, okay, if I preach something and people don't come, people don't listen, people are unhappy about it, people are convicted by it, maybe I should change the message. You know, I was in a meeting uh, with fellow church leaders a couple years ago now, well, I guess a year and a half now. And in in that meeting, we were discussing our sermon plans for the next few years, and uh, they were talking about their plans, and they asked me, you know, what's CCC going to preach about? In the next few years. Well, I said to them at that point, we are in the book of John. Last week we were in John 1, so we're going to be in John 2 this week. And then we're going to be in John 3 next week. And then for 21 weeks, we'll be in the book of John. So we're just going from one chapter to another chapter to another chapter, sticking with the word of God. And I remember they looked at me like I was crazy. Because they were like, so aren't you going to preach something relevant or helpful? You know, we're, we're modern people now. That's, that's the Bible. It's an ancient text. Like, you know, you got you to update it up a little bit, right? So that's, isn't that the temptation of every preacher? If people don't come, let's just change the message. Let's avoid the word sin. Let's avoid offending people. Let's not preach the difficult passages of the Bible, right? That's our temptation as it was with Moses. Moses is saying here, maybe your name had worked out with Jacob, with Abraham, with Isaac, but, but that was way back when, right? These are modern Egyptian Israelites. They're, 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 they know better now. They're in worse conditions. You've got to preach something more liberating, more relevant, more fresh to them. And God's saying here again, stay the course. You have no right to change the word of God. And I haven't changed. God doesn't work with a plan B. He's a self-existent one. He will remain who he is, and his plan will remain who he is. 
stay the course, continue to preach the word of God, right? And what is that word? So the fourth thing we gotta note here is the covenants of God. Notice what he says here in verses four and five. I also established, this is chapter six, verse four and five, I also established my covenant with them to give them to the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. And notice the end of verse five, and I have remembered my covenant. So verse four, I established my covenant with them and their forefathers in the past. Verse five, I remember this covenant. And covenant here just means God's promise, right? God promises to be with his people and God is saying, I'm faithful to my word. I'm not gonna change that. No matter what happens to the Israelites, whether it's the, the, the slavery of Pharaoh or whatever happens to them, their own sinfulness, I'm not gonna change what I say and because I'm faithful, I'm gonna continue to be with my people. You see, God's unchangeableness, God's unchangeability, right? This attribute of God should be utterly sweet to you because you might think to yourself, oh, okay, if God is unchangeable, isn't that not good? You know, I mean, does that mean that I could never change the mind of God? Doesn't that mean that he doesn't react to my prayers or react to the events of this world? But don't you see, if God really did change himself according to what you did, isn't that absolutely terrifying? He might love you today and not love you tomorrow. He might promise you one thing today and then change his mind. You know what? I take back that promise. Do you really want a change in God? You see, friends, this is God's assurance to Moses in the times of hard difficulty. I have not changed my mind. Pharaoh's rising up. I haven't changed my mind. The people of Israel, they worship me in chapter 4. They forgot me in chapter 5. I haven't changed my mind. My covenant is still with them. In other words, God isn't just a transcendent God who's high and aloof and above us. He's also the imminent God who is with us and for his people. He's not just, in other words, high and majestic. He's close and for his people. And he promises to be with them. I will be with them again and again and again. This is his assurance to them. And if he is with his people, why should they fear Pharaoh's judgments and Pharaoh's smite? See, this came uh, to mind uh, a few months ago. I was watching interviews of Post Malone. Again, you never thought that you would mention Post Malone in a sermon, but here I am speaking about this, I think, 24-year-old rapper with face tattoos. All right, so this is who he is. Post Malone is a rapper with face tattoos. And so, you know, when I first saw Post Malone, I was really totally judging him. I was like, this guy's face tattoos. I can't take him seriously. He's probably a jerk, right? But Post Malone is evidence that you should never judge a book by its cover. Because as I watched interview after interview of this, this, this person, he was so kind. He was so humble, he was so sweet. And then one particular interview, he was talking about his mother. And I was so, so moved by his, 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 his words about his mother. So basically the interview, I couldn't find it again, I tried to find it just yesterday um, for this sermon. But basically what, what the interviewer was asking is, how do you handle criticism? You've shot to fame, you know, you use a lot of auto-tune as well, so you, you, you get a lot of criticism. How do you, as a popular musician, handle criticism when you're always aware of it? And Post Malone says, yeah, you know, I try not to listen to it, you know, it's, 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 it's a bit overwhelming. But Post Malone said, I just remember, you know, back at home in my old hometown, my mom approves of me. She loves me, she listens and buys my music, she puts articles on me on her wall. And when I want to handle criticism, when I see that criticism, I just remember my mom loves me anyways. And I was like, you have a face tattoo. This doesn't compute with my mind, you know? This is like an optical illusion. Like, like your words are so kind, but you're, I don't know, you know, it just doesn't work for me. I can't compute it. I can't understand it. But you see, what Post Malone understood about his mother is, is amplified infinitely fold, right? Through what God is saying here to the people of Israel and to Moses. 
God is saying here, look, if I approve of you, if I'm with you, if I'm for you, if I'm supporting you, if I am the one that will redeem you, why should you be afraid of Pharaoh? That's his message. If God is for you, even when the greatest powers of this world is against you, friends, why should you be afraid? If you have God's approval, why should you then be disillusioned or disappointed when the world doesn't approve of you? Couldn't you face anything? If you really understood that the Lord of the universe, who's singularly who he is, approves of you, then maybe you would handle the criticism of this world a little bit differently, wouldn't it? But the question, of course, that, that comes with, with that claim is, why in the world would God be for this people? All right, let's go to our third point. How would God approve of such people? How, how, would, how would God approve of them? All right, look at verse 9, the end of our passage here. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So again, it's almost like fortifying Moses' fears, right? Moses spoke the same message again, and then the people hardened their hearts again. Because of their broken spirit, they couldn't listen to Moses. In their hard slavery, they couldn't listen to Moses. They were demoralized. They were not encouraging at all, right? In other words, this remains a hard and stiff-necked people. This remains a people that continually reject and resist the creator and redeemer of, of, of their savior, right? So why would God be for them? Why would God be for such a sinful, feeble, fickle people? It's not obvious to us that God should be covenanting with his people. There's an imbalance here, isn't it? And by the way, as we looked at the Israelites, I hope we're not just looking at them as if we could look at them down our noses, right? as if we're above them in some way morally. Aren't we as fickle as they are? Aren't we just as tossing and turning as they are? Aren't we just hardened and sinful as they are? Why would God want to be in a covenant with us? Why? And why would God uh, have a relationship with sinful people, right? And do we believe that God is for us? And, and how do we believe that God is for us in the same way that he was for the Israelites? How are we included, in other words, in this covenant with the Israelites? How do we say that God is for us without, in other words, sounding a little bit delusional? You met somebody like that? Just living their lives unrepentantly and saying, oh, God is for me, God is for me. How do we actually know that God is for us and we're not just making stuff up. You see, how can God approve of a people that he shouldn't even approve of? Well, it's because, friends, many, many years later, right, there's a different son. And this son, friends, he too was sent to a leader, but not a, an earthly leader like, like, like Pharaoh, not, not an earthly power like Pharaoh, but the rulers of the powers of this world, the spiritual authorities here, the powers of sin and death themselves. And this son, instead of grumbling when he was broken in spirit and was subjected under harsh slavery, right? The, the harshest slaveries, that is being put on a cross. When his spirit was most broken, he didn't grumble, he didn't disobey, he didn't fail listening to God. Rather, when he was most broken in spirit and he cried up to God, he turned to God, God didn't assure him. God didn't assure him in the four ways that God had just assured Moses and the Israelites. In other words, God was silent and he disapproved of his son, Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ took the disapproval that you and I and the Israelites should have taken. God disapproved of his son and the approval that he should have imputed to his son was then given to us. 
Jesus took our disapproval so that we might be approved by God. And so now, when we turn to the name of God, we understand that God isn't just Jehovah, the self-existent powerful one. We understand God is also Yeshua, the God who saves, right? And if this is the God that saves, we can suddenly look, and this is the power of God of salvation, not in the form of the Red Sea, but in the humble forms of baptism. We've been crossed from slavery into new life. And so when we look at the power and redemption of God, we won't just say, the Lord will redeem, the Lord will save, the Lord will be our God. But we would say in the past tense, the Lord has saved, the Lord has redeemed, the Lord is our God, and he has come to his people, and his name is Jesus Christ, right? And then suddenly when you look upon the cross and you saw his perfect life, you saw his perfect obedience, now when you are broken in spirit, when the earthly rulers of this world are against you, remember that you have the approval of this God who has given you the perfect approval of Jesus Christ. And if you have the approval of this God, if you have the approval of this, earth, uh, this, this, this heavenly father, you can face your unbelieving earthly fathers. If you can face and, 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 and believe in the approval of this divine Lord, you can face the unbelieving lords of your life. If you have his approval, you can face any criticism you have and continue to obey and stay the course even when you're tempted now to not listen to him anymore. Friends, this is the gospel. Believe in Jesus Christ in whom you have God's approval. Let us pray. Father, what an amazing gospel it is, and precisely because of this gospel, you can and you will redeem your people. And now that we have your approval, Father, we can face the disapprovals of this world knowing that we have the covenant in God behind us and for us. Father, help us really know this in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.